millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I've just a few notices this week, and the first is an upcoming chat episode. In a month's time, I'll be welcoming Elizabeth Norton onto the podcast. A historian and author, Elizabeth has written a ton of books on the Queens of England, including a complete anthology of all of them, which was absolutely vital when I was talking about the lesser-studied medieval queens. She's also done biographies of a number of Tudor queens, and her study of Anne of Cleves was a useful part of my reading for researching this miniseries. Her chat episode, though, will be more in the style of her anthology, a general discussion about all of Henry VIII's six wives, from Catherine to Catherine. What I thought would make it more interesting, though, is if you could send in any questions or topics that you'd like us to cover. I'll ask you again nearer the time, but I thought I'd give you a heads up so you could give it a bit of thought. Think of it as question time, but without David Dimbleby. Actually, come to think of it, that reference will only make sense to the three or so of my listeners who are fellow British politicos. Ah well, it never ceases to amaze me that a show about English queens is mostly listened to by our dear American cousins. So, a shout out to all of you. Okay, got a little sidetracked there. To sum up... An exciting chapter so coming up. Get thinking about any questions you'd like to ask, and maybe you'll get it discussed on the podcast. Fantastic. All I have left to thank is my most recent monthly donators. Lindsay, Bryce, Richard, Haley, Mary, and Nancy. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for your continued support. If you'd like to join this noble band of fearless and courageous heroes, then you can find all the details about how to support me at patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. You can begin at just $1 a month, and it all helps keep the show going. If you'd like to hear all the latest news about the podcast, then the best place to go is the Facebook page, Queen's Finland Podcast, and you can also follow me on Twitter at at Queen's Podcast. If you're new to the show, then welcome. For the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queen's of England Podcast. Episode 49, Anne of Cleves, The King's Sister. So now Henry was once again in the position of looking for legal reasons to be able to divorce one of his wives. The combination of all the factors that I've been talking about, her appearance, fashion, the sexual difficulties, and of course his desire to marry Catherine Howard, all inextricably led him to this decision. There are, however, three big differences between the positions that Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves found themselves in, which will be crucial in what is about to occur. The first is experience. Catherine spoke excellent English, had lots of English support, and had been living in England for nearly three decades when the divorce proceedings began. This meant that she had a far firmer base on which to fight. Secondly, 
Catherine had a daughter whose rights she was fighting for. Removing her from the queenship and declaring their marriage invalid was not just an attack on Catherine, it made Mary illegitimate and deprived her of her rights. But perhaps the third reason was the most important. Anne of Cleves had the example of what had happened to both Catherine and Anne Boleyn. She knew that the penalty for denying Henry his divorce was, at best, neglect, and at worst, death. There were rumours around Europe that Henry had poisoned Catherine, beheaded Anne, and then caused Jane to die of neglect. This explains why, as we shall see, she didn't really fight this annulment. So, this is how it all went down. The first thing that needed to happen was to move Anne out of court, and isolate her, so she was moved to Richmond Palace just down the river. The next thing that was needed was to convene a church court so that the legality of the wedding could be investigated. This required Anne's consent, and so a messenger was sent to Richmond to obtain it. After receiving the message, Anne and the Clevesian ambassador, Carl Haast, discussed what they should do next. Anne was apparently dumbstruck by the news. She knew the marriage wasn't going well, but she didn't think Henry would want an annulment. According to the Earl of Rutland, who was a go-between, quote, I did see her take the matter heavily. I desired her to be of good comfort, that the King's Highness is so gracious and virtuous a prince that he would do nothing but that should stand with the law of God and for the discharge of his conscience and hers, and the quietness of this realm hereafter. She then gave her permission to have her marriage investigated. I mean, what else could she do? Rutland basically is trying to keep Anne calm here and prevent her from doing anything rash. Henry had no desire for this to get ugly, as he was on shaky diplomatic ground as it was. This needed to be as quick and as painless as possible. Mostly for him, but to an extent for Anne as well. Anne was fairly reassured by Rutland, but her ambassador Haast was furious that Anne, the daughter of a duke, should be treated this way. He stormed up to the court and demanded that she be treated with more respect, but he was largely ignored. While he was away, though, more delegations arrived at Richmond, almost certainly asking Anne to confess to the non-consummation of her marriage. She said nothing, but her ladies gave these ambassadors that deposition that I read to you last time about Anne's sexual naivety. The Church Council was called to order on the 6th of July, and they were presented with three major arguments. One was that Anne was pre-contracted to Francis of Lorraine. Now, you may think that that was the ball game there and then, but not really. The church had already ruled that Anne and Henry had been free to marry before it had taken place, and no new evidence had surfaced. Of course, there was no evidence to dispute Henry's argument, which was why it was brought up, but on its own, it was not enough. More was needed. Which leads me on to two, Henry had not consented. Basically, this boiled down to the fact that Henry had wanted to get out of this marriage to Anne from the moment he had first seen her. He gathered witnesses who testified to the fact. He'd only gone along with the marriage out of sheer social and diplomatic awkwardness. Talk about British problems. And then finally, three, lack of consummation. This was potentially the clincher. The other two on their own were not really strong enough grounds for a secure decision that would be accepted, but annulling a marriage based on lack of consummation was based on solid ecclesiastical law. If anyone saw the irony in annulling this marriage over lack of consummation, when the whole basis of his first annulment from Catherine was that she had consummated her marriage to Prince Arthur, then they wisely kept their mouths shut. For this, Henry needed his old bosom pal Thomas Cromwell still imprisoned in the Tower. He was instructed to write a letter confirming that Henry had spoken to him on this subject, which of course he did, hoping against hope that this may save him from execution. 
This was supported by the testimony from his doctors that I read you last time. Now, you may be wondering, where was Anne in all of this? Well, remember when Catherine of Aragon was allowed to attend her own trial, and she had stormed in, pleaded her case to Henry on her knees in front of everyone, dropped Mike, and then walked out? Yeah, Henry was not going to make that mistake again. Anne remained in Richmond, possibly unaware of the speed at which everything else was moving. It only took a day and a half for the court to reach their verdict. Quote, The king and Anne of Cleves were nowise bound by the marriage solemnised between them. All that was left was for the commissioners to go to Richmond to inform Anne that she was no longer the queen. This was important, as all this could be put in jeopardy if Anne refused the argument that the marriage was invalid. Now, Henry had a plan in readiness for this. Remember all the talk earlier about her not being a virgin? Well, he had a full-on smear campaign planned if she did not play ball. She would be subject to the same treatment that Catherine of Aragon had been forced to endure. As I said, neither Anne nor Haast expected judgment to be given so quickly, and so were completely taken aback when these commissioners arrived. When the ambassador broke the news to Anne, she apparently broke down in shock. First she fainted, then she cried in anguish. She potentially thought that this was the first step to Henry finding a reason to execute her, or maybe it was just the reaction of a foreigner in a land she did not understand, unable to comprehend why she was being treated in this way when she had done nothing wrong. Aside from the misunderstanding at Rochester, she had done everything in her power to make things right. But now, it was all over. It looks like Anne got all her anguish out, though, before the commissioners were granted an audience, because when they met, she was apparently very calm. She did not like the situation, and in her heart she still considered their marriage to be valid, but when she was informed that if she accepted Henry's terms then she would be fairly treated, she agreed to acquiesce. She wrote the following letter to Henry, which I shall quote in full. Quote, It may please your most excellent majesty to understand that, whereas at sundry times heretofore I have been informed and perceived by certain laws and others, your grace's counsel, of the doubts and questions which had been moved and found in our marriage, and how hath petition thereupon been made to your highness by your nobles and commons, that the same might be examined and determined by the holy clergy of this realm, to testify to your highness by my writing, that which I have before promised by my word and will, that is to say, that the matter should be examined and determined by the said clergy. It may please your majesty to know that, though this case must needs be most hard and sorrowful unto me, for the great love which I bear to your most noble person, Yet, having more regard to God and his truth than to any worldly affection, as beseemeth me at the beginning, to submit me to such examination and determination of the said clergy, who I have and do accept for judges competent in that behalf. So now being ascertained how the same clergy hath therein given their judgment and sentence, I acknowledge myself hereby to accept and approve the same, wholly and entirely putting myself for my state and condition to your highness's goodness and pleasure, most humbly beseeching your majesty that, though it be determined that the pretended matrimony between us is void and of none effect, whereby I neither can nor will repute myself for your grace's wife, considering this sentence whereunto I stand, and your majesty's clean and pure living with me, yet it will please you to take me for one of your humble servants, and so determine of me as I may sometimes have the fruition of your most noble presence, which, as I shall esteem for a great benefit. So, my lords and others of your majesty's council now being with me, have put me in comfort thereof, and that your highness will take me for your sister, for which I most humbly thank you accordingly. 
Thus, most gracious Prince, I beseech our Lord God to send your majesty long life and good health, to God's glory, your own honour, and the wealth of this noble realm. From Richmond, the 11th day of July, the 32nd year of your majesty's most noble reign. Your majesty's most humble sister and servant, Anne, the daughter of Cleves. So, here in this letter, Anne submits to Henry's judgement, giving an acceptable degree of reluctance to allow her to maintain some dignity. She lets Henry know that she accepted the jurisdiction of the clerical council to pass judgement, and that she accepted their decision. The reasons why she did so are also laid out. Henry had promised to treat her well, and she thanks him for that. He had also given her a new title, the King's Sister. This got Henry out of his diplomatic bind. By repudiating Anne, he was, in effect, repudiating the alliance with Cleves and the Schmalkaldic League, but of course he did not want to do that if he could help it, because otherwise England would be very diplomatically isolated. It was, after all, the very reason for the marriage in the first place. The title of King's Sister and that she would still be a member of the royal family, still closely associated with the King of England, just not his wife. The last bit is also super important. She signs off as, quote, Anne, the daughter of Cleves. She was no longer the Queen of England. By doing this, by conceding early and with dignity, she ingratiated herself with the King and his ministers, and she would be rewarded for doing so. While Henry had been hoping that it would be this straightforward, I think he had feared the worst. After receiving Anne's letter, he quickly wrote back to her in a letter that was signed by his counsellors. Quote, Write, dear, and write entirely beloved sister, by the relation of the Lord Master, Lord Privy Seal, and others of our council, lately addressed unto you, we perceive the continuance of your conformity, which before was reported, and by your letters is eftsoons testified. We take your wise and honourable proceedings therein in most thankful part, as it is done in respect of God and his truth, and, continuing your conformity, you shall find us a perfect friend, content to repute you as our dearest sister. The letter then goes on to promise her a yearly income of £4,000, residences at Richmond and Bletchingley, both of which were close to London, so that she could be near to him. This meant that, quote, You may be near to us, and, as you desire, be able to repair unto our court to see us, as we shall repair to you. When Parliament ends, we shall, in passing, see and speak with you, and you shall more largely see what a friend you and your friends have of us. Thus subscribed, your loving brother and friend, H.R. In the settlement that was eventually reached, she was given extensive property in Sussex, Essex and Suffolk, which would provide her with a hefty income, along with those two palaces. As the king's sister, she was promised a highly prominent role at court, only behind Henry, his wife and children. This was all financed, essentially, from land seized from Thomas Cromwell, so it really didn't cost Henry all that much. And also requested access to Princess Elizabeth, as she had taken a bit of a shine to her. Indeed, there was only one real sticking point in the whole arrangement. Henry was very keen for Anne to write to her brother, the Duke William of Cleves, to explain the situation to him herself. She had to say that she was content with the new position, and that she was willing to stay in England as Henry's sister. Anne refused to do this, because she said it was not meet for her to write to him before he wrote to her. Henry, however, insisted that she write, and he furthermore insisted that she write two letters, one of them in German, so they could be proven without doubt that she knew what it was that she had written. This was to prevent her trying to back out later in the day. In the end, a compromise was reached, wherein she replied to a letter written by William to Henry, saying exactly what Henry had requested. She then forwarded to Henry, quote, 
The ring delivered unto her at their pretended marriage, desiring that it might be broken in pieces as a thing which she knew of no force or value. Symbolically and legally then, her marriage was over. But she was far from free of Henry. She was not allowed to return home, nor was she allowed to correspond with her brother unless her letters were first inspected by Henry's counsellors. As Henry had hoped, annulling his marriage to Anne of Cleves and then quickly remarrying made little impact on the diplomatic stage. Some money was used as lubricant to keep the wheels of diplomacy moving, which meant that William was assuaged. His official position was that, while he did not agree with the decision, as he knew the marriage to be valid, he did not want this to get in the way of the English alliance. This kept France happy, as Cleves was now allied to them, and their friendship with England could be beneficial to Francis. On Charles's part, he hoped the dissolution of the marriage could lead to a breakup of the Cleves alliance in the future, which would be good for him. Basically, all was well. Okay, so let's take a quick step back and assess Anne's current situation. Financially speaking, she was just fine. As I said earlier, the divorce settlement left her a rich woman. Indeed, one could argue that purely financially, she was far better off a divorcee. However, in terms of the status, she had taken a big hit. She'd been brought up to be a duchess or a queen. Those were the only two options. Now she was neither. Being the king's sister did not have the pomp and circumstance of being a queen. It just wasn't the same. It would be very hard for her to get a good remarriage now, and she had the stigma attached to her of a divorcee. All the nasty things that Henry had said about her appearance were a matter of public record. Everyone knew. Who wanted to marry Henry's ugly, smelly cast-off? Some modern writers seem to be taking the view that Anne should be grateful that she got out of the marriage so lightly. After all, Henry's previous and indeed future track record of keeping his queens alive and well was pretty awful, but that uses the benefit of hindsight. Right then, I would imagine that Anne would have given anything to be queen again. Then again, though, she was a pragmatist. She knew that there was nothing to be done for now. She would not be a second Catherine of Aragon. She also did not just roll over and submit to Henry's rather Orwellian demands. While she had promised to let him and his counsellors read all of her letters before sending them, she had no intention of actually doing this, and kept up a number of secret correspondences, most especially with her brother, the Duke of Cleves. After a visit from Henry in early August, where he officially informed her of his marriage to Catherine Howard, Anne was invited back to court in January of the following year. Catherine got herself in a right tizzy, not knowing what the protocol was for a queen greeting a former queen and now sister-in-law. She left Anne waiting for quite some time, not knowing what to do. When she eventually did enter, though, Anne proved what a pro she was. She threw herself at Catherine's feet with, quote, as much reverence and punctilious ceremony as if she herself were the most insignificant damsel about the court, all the time addressing the queen on her knees. While this was happening, Henry entered the room, and, unlike Catherine, he was not indecisive about what the protocol was. He bowed to Anne, embraced her, and kissed her. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This rather awkward threesome then dined together that night and the next, and Anne and the Queen danced together in the evenings. Catherine also gave Anne gifts, including two puppies. By now, her English was non-impeccable, according to onlookers, and to all the world, she looked as happy as Larry. Eustace Chapuis noted that she looked, quote, as unconcerned as if there had been nothing between them. She remained at court for a few more days before finally returning to Richmond. This seems to have been her only visit to court during Catherine's time as queen, and for the next little while, we can only piece together her movements from fragments. We know that she made herself very much at home at Richmond Palace, which is understandable, as it was one of the plushest residences in England. It had been a personal favourite of Henry's before he took possession of Hampton Court, and would later become one of Queen Elizabeth I's most regular haunts when she took the throne. Richmond allowed Anne to remain close to the court, and therefore keep abreast of all the latest gossip. She also used some of her considerable wealth to update her wardrobe, though not everyone was convinced that her enthusiasm and apparent jollity was genuine. According to the French ambassador, quote, Far from pretending to be married, she is as joyous as ever and wears new dresses every day, which argues either prudent dissimulation or stupid forgetfulness of what should so closely touch her heart. If this was just a front being put on by Anne, then it seems to be worrying the heck out of Catherine Howard, who, according to Chapuis, was sad and told Henry when he asked her what the matter was that it, quote, was owing to some rumour or other afloat that he was about to take back Anne de Cleves as his wife, to which the king replied that she was wrong to believe such things, or attach any reports of the kind. Even if he had to marry again, he would never retake Mademoiselle de Cleves. There was even a wild rumour that Henry had fathered a child with Anne. Completely absurd, of course, but to clear his name, Henry ordered one of Anne's ladies to examine her. One assumes to check for stretch marks or something. Suffice it to say, Anne was not thrilled by this, as it was a complete invasion of her privacy, but, of course, there was nothing she could do about it. When Catherine, spoiler alert, fell, and it was clear that she would be executed for her quote-unquote crimes, it seemed that maybe there was a glimmer of hope that Anne could regain the queenship, and she bought into it totally. Probably on her instruction, Ambassador Ha sent letters written by her brother and another high-ranking Cleves diplomat to three high-ranking English nobles, Suffolk, Southampton, and Archbishop Cramner, all people whom Anne believed looked upon her favourably. These letters stated that Haast had the authority to renegotiate a marriage and asked for their support. All three nobles forwarded these letters unto Henry, not willing to do anything behind his back, and did nothing else to support Anne's cause. Haast, who was nothing if not persistent, repeatedly requested audiences with the king. After being rebuffed, he then pursued the nobles I mentioned before, but they too were unwilling to back what they believed to be a hopeless cause. Haast was encouraged by the French ambassador, but he admitted in his dispatch to Francis I that he believed it to be in vain. This ambassador, who was a great admirer of how Anne carried herself in this time, 
did have this to say about her popularity with the people. Quote, She has behaved with her household so wisely that those who visit her marvel at such great virtue. Others who hear of it are loud in her praise and all regret her much more than they did the late Queen Catherine of Aragon. We know from Chapuis, who was very concerned by this development, that she and Henry exchanged gifts at New Year's and that when she got sick with tertian fever, he sent his doctors over to treat her. Huss was also sent many letters from German princes urging Henry to remarry his former wife. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we know that this never happened, and moreover, it sounds like a rather fanciful notion, but it isn't as ridiculous as it might first appear, and it was taken very seriously by Chapuis. It does appear that Henry and Anne got on very well. Furthermore, Henry had previously and since only married people that he had known for some time. Now that Henry knew Anne better, maybe things could be different. What was not helping Anne's cause to remarry Henry, aside from his public denials that he had any such desire, was the diplomatic situation. Henry considered his alliance with Cleves over, as his marriage had ended and he had no more need for it. Duke William, on his part, had also moved on and was pursuing a French bride to help him with his long-running dispute with Charles V, which eventually broke out into open war. Against the might of Charles V's imperial army, even French support could not save William, whose army was crushed, forcing him to surrender territory that he had disputed with Charles. So it comes as little surprise to you all that Anne did not remarry Henry, as, in July 1543, Henry made what would turn out to be his final marriage to Catherine Parr. Anne, who as I said had re-bought into the idea that the remarriage was going to happen, was crushed. According to Chapuis, quote, I hear from an authentic source that Anne would rather lose everything in this world and return to her motherland and return to her mother than remain longer in England, especially now that she is in despair and much afflicted in consequence of this late marriage of the king with a lady who, besides being inferior to her in beauty, gives no hope whatsoever of posterity to the king, for she had no children by her first two husbands. If you are to believe Chapuis then, Anne was under the impression that the sticking points in the supposed remarriage to Henry were her beauty and ability to bear children, and so the choice for an apparently ugly, frumpy and barren Catherine Parr was a dagger to her heart that she was neither prepared nor could she bear. One could argue then that the only reason Anne had remained in England was to entice Henry back into marriage with her, but that seems a little far-fetched to me. For sure, it may have been in the back of her mind all this time, and something that she bought into once the marriage to Catherine Howard started to fall apart, but I don't see Anne as being some master schemer. She stayed in England because there she was a rich landowner and a figure of importance. Had she returned to Cleves, then she would have been effectively just an impoverished middle-aged spinster. I know which one I would have chosen. If Chapuis was telling the truth about Anne wanting to leave, then I imagine her brother's situation on the continent would have quickly persuaded her that this would not be a sensible plan. After he was forced to beg for peace from Charles, he was out of the fighting, but the whole region remained volatile. In 1546, Schmalkaldic League found itself at war with Emperor Charles and quite predictably was crushed. Around the same time, Anne's mother died and William remarried. This all meant that Cleves was really not the home it had once been. She had far more roots in England, not to mention wealth and status. Indeed, she was a far more regular visitor to court during the queenship of Catherine Parr than Catherine Howard, perhaps because Parr did not have the stigma of being a former lady-in-waiting to her. In 1546, it was reported that she, quote, goes and comes to the court at her pleasure. Indeed, she truly was now considered a member of the royal family. She appeared at great state occasions in a similar role as Henry's daughters, and her household inventories accounted as part of a survey of royal property in 1546 
alongside that of Henry, his children, and the Queen. I would argue that this was the most comfortable she had ever been, despite her familial woes on the continent. Relations with her former husband were good, she gained even more land, including the former Berlin home of Hever Castle, and she was a member of a great European royal family. But, of course, all good things must come to an end. In late January 1547, Henry VIII died. The king's sister was now the king's aunt. Indeed, the situation was far worse than that. Henry had essentially been Anne's patron. He had provided her with, essentially, a made-up title and position, and provided her with a very generous settlement in return for playing ball with a divorce. Inheriting the throne was a boy in Edward VI, who had not reached his majority, and so was reliant on his council of regents, led by the Lord Protector. For them, Anne was an expensive anachronism, and they were keen to get her pension and other stipends off the ledgers. Part of the problem was that the kingdom was in poor financial shape. Inflation was on the rise, and nothing gets the masses going like high food prices. This was especially a problem for Anne, as she was on a fixed income. Henry had helped her out in later years to mean that she had never felt the pinch, but that had all dried up, and she was now finding that her generous provision was no longer able to sustain her. In April 1547, she sent emissaries to the Regency Council, asking for an increase in her pension due to the financial situation. They agreed to do so, not willing to go against the wishes of the former king, but hit her hard with a proviso, which was that she had to give up Bletchingly to the Master of Revels, and then found Richmond Palace taken from her in 1548. This land grab did not end, as Edward's council continued to pick apart Henry's bequests to her piece by piece. This had a big effect on her finances. In a letter to her brother, she wrote, quote, God knows what will happen next, and everything is so costly here in this country that I don't know how I can run my house. In 1552, she once again positioned the council for more funds, but this time she was flat out refused. It does not seem to have occurred to her that she may have to lower her standards and live more frugally. In her mind, she was a member of the English royal family, and a former Queen of England. There was a certain status, a certain majesty that was required of such a person, and she was determined to maintain it. Unfortunately, she couldn't really afford it, and so went into debt. It also did not help that England was finally being run by a Protestant king, aided by a ruling Protestant regency. There does not appear to have been a concerted effort to convert Anne, but I'm sure they would not have looked kindly to her holding onto the old ways. In an ideal world, now, she wanted to return to her homeland, as England was no longer the home it was during Henry's life, but if she did, she would lose all her money, and without that she would be in even worse financial shape. All she could do was wait and see if the situation changed. Maybe the economy would turn. It didn't, but there was a significant change in the kingdom in 1553, as the boy King Edward died. The reign of Mary I, the first undisputed Queen Regnant in English history, saw an uptick in Anne's fortunes. Mary invited Anne back to court and was one of her attendants during her entry into the city, and at her coronation. During the procession, indeed, she was in the second chariot, Mary of course being in the first, with Princess Elizabeth, the Queen's sister. They wore matching dresses of crimson velvet and were also together at the coronation banquet. This was a huge set-piece event, and Anne's prominent role within it showed that she was back in the bosom of the royal family. As Mary sought to reverse the Reformation and return England to the Roman Catholic fold, she found a ready adherent in Anne, who was more than happy to see the kingdom return to her own religion. A major debate that dominated Mary's reign was her marriage. Queen's regnant were considered unideal at the time, but it was all considered okay if they married and shared their burden with her husband. This meant that the selection of a husband became the overarching topic at court. 
and Anne, of course, as a prominent member of it, had her own ideas. As a prominent Glevesian, she was keen for Mary to marry someone who was friendly to her homeland. According to the new Spanish ambassador, Simon Renard, quote, My Lady of Cleves has spoken to the Queen about a marriage with the Archduke Ferdinand. Ferdinand was a nephew of Charles V and Duke William's brother-in-law. This would have been de Cleves' great advantage, and so Anne was almost certainly approached by Ferdinand to help push his case. This was influence at court that Anne had never had before, but her attempts were all in vain, as Mary had already secretly chosen a husband in Philip of Spain, and in that endeavour she had the support of Charles V, who let it be known that he did not support the candidacy of Ferdinand. Now, the Ferrari over Mary's marriage to Philip is hugely complicated, and I won't get into it, but to sum it up in a sentence, it was hugely unpopular with basically everyone, there was a huge uprising called Wyatt's Rebellion, which was super scary, but Mary was a badass and crushed it. The post-mortem into this rebellion saw many prominent figures targeted, among them Anne of Cleves and Princess Elizabeth, whom the rebels had wished to place on the throne. It's almost certain that Anne had nothing to do with Wyatt's Rebellion. She was disappointed by the choice of Philip, yes, but it's hard to see why she would have risked everything when she was doing pretty well by all accounts. According to the Spanish ambassador, though, Mary saw her as a snake in the grass. Quote, the Queen told me that the Lady of Cleves was of the plot and intrigued with the Duke of Cleves to obtain help for Elizabeth. Anne was close with Elizabeth, and this, along with her support of the marriage to Ferdinand, which was also backed by her brother William, seemed to be enough to make her a prime suspect. These were dangerous times. There was risk of a French invasion to prevent the Spanish marriage, and the fact that the Wyatt Revolt had come so close to succeeding made everyone, Mary included, highly paranoid. Anne, though, was seemingly oblivious to the suspicion that she was under, and was very chummy with the Queen, and wrote her a very kind and warm letter, congratulating her when she eventually got her own way and married Philip. Anne was not invited to the wedding, though, and was not also invited back to court. Her brief return to prominence was over, and this would be her last moment in the sun. It was now 1554, and Anne was approaching the age of 40. This was not exactly old age, but it was getting on a bit by the standards of the day. Her final years were spent chafing under royal interference, as, like during the reign of Edward VI, they sought to take away her privileges, money and estates by a thousand cuts. She once more fell into debt, and her household at this time was awash with infighting, as servants, attendants and advisers fought to keep their positions and stay in favour. Her dirty laundry started to get exposed at court, with both Mary and Philip being drawn into the disputes. It was all very undignified. By July 1557, a very sick woman, she composed her will. She states that she is, quote, sick in body but whole in memory, and asks that her remaining money be used to pay off her debts and her servants and ensure that they were well cared for. These bequests are very generous and shows how close she was to the men and women of her household, who had been her closest companions over her near two decades in England. Each person was named explicitly and given a gift, a remarkable feat for a prominent noblewoman. She also distributed gifts to her brother and his wife, as well as her other remaining family members. A few days after composing her will, Anne died on the 5th of July, the last surviving wife of Henry VIII. News of her death initially aroused little attention, but Queen Mary, who was nothing if not a loyal woman, saw it as her duty to give Anne a fitting funeral. She was buried at Westminster Abbey in a big ceremony that was described by a London diarist. First, he talks about a great parade of all, featuring, quote, all children of Westminster and many priests and clerks. Also present were the Bishop of London and Abbot of Westminster, as well as her executors, household, and a smattering of other nobles. Everyone was dressed in black, 
and burning torches illuminated the abbey. A requiem and sermon were given before she was finally interred, the only one of Henry's wives to be buried in Westminster Abbey, and arguably the only one other than Jane Seymour not to die under a cloud. Anne of Cleves is one of Henry's least known wives. Slandered at the time and stuck in an alien kingdom she did not understand, she played a very difficult hand as well as she could, and the fact that she survived so long is testament to her success. Her life was dictated by men, like so many English queens, though she also had the dubious honour of being cast aside by a woman too in Queen Mary. She was very popular amongst the people. Indeed, Chapuis remarks that, quote, Everybody has nothing but good to say of the Duchess. And yet it is fair to say that her life was not exactly a happy one. There is a tendency in some analyses of Anne to call her life a total success. Yes, she was cast from the throne, but she survived, unlike two of Henry's wives, and ended up doing fairly well for herself. But that is from the benefit of hindsight and forgetting exactly what Anne went through. Weighing everything up, I think this positive analysis has some merit. Like I said, the troubles of Anne's life were not of her own making. She did very well with what she had, but I don't think we can say, sadly, that Anne recognised it as such. In her biography of Anne, Elizabeth Norton sums it up, I think, very well. Quote, Anne was, perhaps, the luckiest of Henry's wives, but the honour of being the luckiest of a pantheon of luckless women did not mean she was happy. Anne remained in exile until the end of her life, and Henry VIII blighted her life as he blighted so many others. Henry was both her patron and the source of her great humiliation, the font of her wealth, but also the cause of her fall. Yet he was not the only villain of her life. Both his children's regimes equally treated her poorly, as an embarrassing loose end. But I think we've discovered over the last three episodes that she was far more important than that. And it is there that we will end for this week. It occurs to me that we have now spent nearly six months ensconced in the story of Henry and his six wives, and we still have another two of them to go. We're almost at the end, but there's still plenty more to cover. So next time, we will go back in time a little to look at the life of Henry's youngest and, in my view, most tragic wife, Catherine Howard. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.